Welcome to the Oxygen Advantage podcast with your hosts, Oxygen Advantage founder Patrick McKeown and Daniel Paulson. With the Oxygen Advantage podcast, we aim to show how functional breathing is an essential part of a healthy and well-balanced lifestyle. Each episode, we meet experts in their field from around the world and talk about their lives, their experiences, and how they learned the importance of breathing. Join us and get inspired. Get the Oxygen Advantage. I think this is going to be an interesting conversation. Here we are, three master instructors of the Oxygen Advantage. And we had a meeting in Galway here about, what was it, about four weeks ago. And Leo Daniel Ryan, who I know many, many years, was giving a presentation um, from his background as a strength and conditioning coach and the application of breathing in sports. And I think this is this is a conversation that really needs to be had because strength and conditioning is, of course, about strength and conditioning. But what about the player who's gassing out too soon? And what about the application of functional breathing for functional movement? And is there a role of breathing in strength and conditioning? And could the strength and conditioning coach that incorporates breathing have an advantage over the one that doesn't? So anyway, that's what this conversation is being about. So I have Daniel Paulson, um, my usual co-host coming from Sweden, and Leo Daniel Ryan is based in the East Coast of Ireland. So welcome, everybody. And uh, let the conversation begin. <laughs> awesome thanks patrick and uh, thanks for having me on uh where to start yeah i suppose just to give the, the the folks there a bit of a background about me i trained with you way back in 2004 and my history is a bit interesting as a, as a trainer because i had chronic childhood asthma which uh, after you taught me originally the buteco and, and and then migrated later on into the auction advantage but when you when you taught me back that back in 2004 I was at one stage sick for six months in bed with asthma. So out of a total of just over a year, I spent six months in bed. I was on three inhalers, 14 cores of antibiotics, and over 425 steroid tablets, prednisolin, uh-huh. five milligram steroid tablets. I know because I kept my tax forms. <laughs> <laughs> but to go from there where 18 months later, I was symptom and medication free and then returning to sport. And then I went on to be a trainer and, and SNC coach. Uh, that is the, the, the 30 second elevator pitch of where I'm coming from. So what I'm trying to say is, is look, if I can do this and if I've found that breathing has been a massive help to me, then it is without doubt going to help every other person that's there because I would consider myself one of the weakest people in the room. Uh, breathing wise speaking, like my anatomy is awful for a sport. I've got a really long, thin nose with small nostrils and a, a, a thin jaw. I've had 11 teeth extractions when I was a kid because I had too many teeth. Um, and then, of course, I had the asthma on top of that as well. So from a, from a physical performance point of view, um, I found that breathing was just incredible. In fact, I still remember the first day that I was, uh, I went back after all of my training, I went back onto the pitches. I played Gaelic football, which is an Irish sport, Daniel. And uh, some viewers might know. And uh, I went back playing and I remember we were doing 80 meter repre- repeat sprints in mud that was like that thick. And It was one of those sessions where the team were just flogged and I felt like I was walking over the mud, like I was running on water. It was just rep after rep, sprint after sprint. I would finish each one and my breath restored almost automatically. 
by the time I was back to the start line, I was ready to go again. And I destroyed everybody in that session. And I was like, whoa, this stuff is powerful, really powerful. But um, kept it to myself for a long time. <laughs> uh, and then eventually when, when I really got the sports science behind behind me and my understanding, then I decided to go challenge it and go, well, what's going on? Because nobody was talking about this stuff. Nobody at all. Um, this is back even 2015, 2016. Mm. There was no conversations about breathing in sport. And certainly it's effects on... The Leo, fit. there's still hardly any. Sorry to cut across you there. There is still hardly any conversations about breathing in sports. Like if you think of any of the university curriculum at the moment, aside from maybe George Dalham and a couple of others, is really being overlooked. But I'd say this will change. Mm-hmm. Oh, will because it's it's been driven by top level sports. Like we had, obviously Daniel, you're in CrossFit. We had Nigel Beach over with us, mm-hmm. uh, who's involved in. I mean, you you tell the guys there, Patrick. Just a couple of your instructors who are involved in maybe top level sports in general. Do you mind saying? Yeah, but pretty much across so many different spectrums, from MMA to rugby, um, and I think yeah, we had about we had what about twenty five people coming in from all corners of the earth from South America to New Zealand. And each one of those were professionals in their own field, you know, and working with some of the top teams in Ireland. In actual fact, three of the people in the room between them were working with the All Blacks, with the Roses, and also in terms of the same instruction being used with the Irish rugby, um, the Irish rugby team. So I think it's definitely getting out there at, at this level, but it still has to trickle down. That's the thing. And how many strength and conditioning coaches know about breathing? How many of them really understand it? I think, I think that it's coming more for people looking for the extra edge versus mm. eating and sleep as a foundation. So it's moving in from, okay, I'm looking for something that somebody else is not doing and bring it in versus something that's, uh, a staple like this is this is what you need to do because if your breathing and sleep is not intact you will never perform at your full potential you could be the best on a team the best in the world but you could have been better so i think that is slowly moving in to every sport uh but it takes time uh mm. it definitely takes time but uh, i suppose Daniel, these guys are keeping it quiet to themselves they're not letting people know because yeah. <laughs> that's what they that's do <laughs> But uh, that's our job, right? We're trying to push it out there. That's it. That's it. But, you know, Leo, I'd say what people are intrigued are, what do you think the actual contribution to your performance improvement was? You know, to because most people don't consider that how you breathe during physical exercise is influenced by how you breathe off the field. And so they, they don't yeah. also consider that physical training is not going to change your breathing patterns unless you're swimming. Yeah. Um, or unless you're actively incorporating specific breathing protocols into your physical training. So what do you think? Um, because people must be wondering what on earth is after happening that you were able to make those, those strides. Yeah, these were the types of questions that I had back. Uh, I, I went back and trained with you for the Oxygen Advantage as, a, as an instructor back in 20, 2015. It was a Buteco and 2016 was your first OA course mm. that you had out, if I remember right. And I had these same questions because at the same time, I you know, discovered other breathing methods and was looking at the convergence of all of them and, and trying to understand it. So in 2017, I put it to the test. Uh, and I said, you know what, I'm going to run a marathon. I hadn't ran in 10 years. I hadn't run in seven years. 
and it was something that I I always wanted to do as a kid. I you know I, I'd stopped playing my elite level sport and I was more focused on coaching at this stage, and. I wanted to answer those questions. I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to do zero endurance training. Hadn't endurance trained at all in the seven years. No running, biking, swimming, nothing. And I said, I'm going to get some testing done. I'm going to do a VO2 max test and find out what's going on. And that started to dive me down the rabbit hole because, again, there was no research papers at the time. There was no evidence of what was going on inside. So I used myself as a case study. And what I found was fascinating. Uh, when, I, when I ran the first VO2 max test, and for those that don't know, we, we actually drew up a little uh, whiteboard earlier on just before we came on board. Just yeah, to... that, I can say that's the whole, that's what we wanted to talk about because you drew a good picture uh, at our meeting that we wanted to talk about the aerobic state, the anaerobic threshold, the anaerobic state and VO2 max. And... Uh, using intensity and time on the uh, y and the x-axis brilliant so this and this is this forms a like the most fundamental assessment of how well you use oxygen in sport so the way the test works is uh, i did a running because i was running a marathon you could do a biking or a rowing depending on your event so you put a mask on you and you're strapped up to a heart rate monitor. And the mask is hooked up to a machine and it analyzes your oxygen consumption and your carbon dioxide um, expiration. And that's what it does. And then you have the heart rate monitor tracking your heart rate as you go along. The test then, what you'll see in this overall test is if you follow that blue line, this is the start of the test and you start walking and it's fine, it's no problem. And then after a couple of minutes, the a person conducting the test will either up the speed or will up the gradient on the test. And that continues to increase and increase and increase throughout the test until eventually you reach your peak, which is your VO2 max. When that happens, the test stops and then you recover afterwards. Does that make sense? Mm. Yep. So this line here, this blue line here, was how the machine would track your um, oxygen consumption throughout the test. So how well you use oxygen throughout the test. So, for example, a the elite um, athletes in the world, you're talking cross-country skiers who are highly endurance-based athletes, they'd have a VO2 max of about 90 um, liters per is it liters per kilogram of body weight, okay? So they're up at, at 90. You then would have a lot of endurance athletes around, you know, the marathon, cross-country skiers, rowers would have extremely high VO2 maxes uh, between 70 to 90. And then as the, as the sport kind of becomes more power-based, uh, then people's VO2 max test comes down and down and down. To give you an idea, um, anything above 45 on a VO2 max test is considered elite uh, for the population. Okay, so in other words, they have a really good um, auction carrying capacity. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. and, and anything below that, then you're looking at you know intermediate standard to, to weak standards of, of um, auction usage. Now, for me, um, in fact, before I go in for me, let me just see. 
Okay, yeah. So for me, when I ran this test, again, I hadn't ran in seven years. I ran the test and I finished it. And the tester, his name is Sean, says to me, well, how do you think he got on? And I says, I don't have a clue how it got on. That's why you're here. You tell me. <laughs> and he goes, it's pretty impressive, Leo. He says, your VO2 was 52.1. He says, now, obviously, I have triathletes and marathon runners. They'd be a lot higher, uh, but you haven't ran in seven years. He says, that's pretty incredible um, that you're able to produce that. He says, did you not do any endurance training? I says, none. He says, okay. He says, but the most interesting thing for me was how well you used oxygen, which is called your um, oxygen uptake, fraction of oxygen uptake. So in... At rest, we typically use about three to three and a half percent oxygen. So the oxygen in the air, we can draw, there, there's 21% in the air, we can draw it and use three to three and a half percent. In sport, typically, and in exercise, typically you can use up to about maybe six and a half. Um, after that, you're considered very elite, um, and only the top of the top would, would draw more. And I was withdrawing over 7% oxygen. Okay, so at the top of my oxygen usage, which is called your anaerobic threshold, which is up here, I was using 7% oxygen. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens after that is, is in this test, because it's a graded test, as it continues to get tougher and tougher and tougher, I start to then reuse lactate as a fuel source and you go, anaerobic okay so in other words it's time to failure does that make sense mm -hmm. yeah. so anything to um my left of this orange line i'm using oxygen as my main fuel source and anything to the right of this line i'm predominantly using lactate as a fuel source and that's really really important because the research in general would show that it's difficult to improve a VO2 max, but it's very trainable to improve how you use your oxygen. Okay, in other words, the AT, the anaerobic threshold, is much more trainable than the overall VO2 max. So think of your VO2 max as generally it's your genetics um, and how you are brought up and where you live determine your VO2 max. Whereas this is a really effective train, or this is a really trainable aspect of the test. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yep. Now, we can talk later on. I mean, in research, it would show that you can improve this by about 5 to 15%, which isn't very much. But in reality, I've talked to a lot of coaches, and this is very trainable um, to improve this. And you just don't true, you just don't improve it with traditional means, which is interesting, right? Now we all know where we're going there. Mm. <laughs> so this is what the test is showing, and this is how my test was at seven percent. What was even more fascinating was was I did put my own little spin on the test, and I asked Sean the tester to go. I want you to mark on the test every time I put my thumbs up. Okay, so what was interesting was, was that when I put my thumbs up was exactly at this point here. 
Okay. So within 15 seconds of me hitting this threshold, I put my thumb up. What, were, what did that thumb signal mean? It meant I went using from all nasal breathing to using my nose to inhale and my mouth to exhale. Now that had never been done before. And that, that data was, it was sure it was unique to me, but it was never in a research paper that your anaerobic threshold could be related to how you breathe in a trained athlete. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I thought this was amazing. And because now I had a means of how I was going to finish this marathon, because obviously I couldn't use heart rate zones. I couldn't pace myself because I hadn't been running at all. But I knew that if I could breathe just with my nose in and out of my nose, that at least I would have the energy to last the whole marathon. So what I did for the marathon then was I taped my mouth. I taped my mouth and I ran the marathon, the whole marathon with mouth taped and uh, got to the end and was fresh as a daisy, not a bother. <laughs> it's so cool. I'm sure plenty of your um, competitors must have been looking and wondering what the hell is going on here, whatever lands myself into. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. It was uh, the only person that got a stranger look was uh, a gentleman doing it for charity where he was uh, running with a wheelchair backwards. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was funny because he'd be passing by people and uh, they'd be, you know, they'd be giving you, oh, hi, how are you? How are you getting on? You know, keep going. And then they'd see me with my mouth taped and they'd, they'd do a double and a triple tape. They go, what are you doing? And I'm like, I can't talk. <laughs> it's, well, it's interesting that you said that, that you reached your AT and you switched over to nose mouth breathing. And we spoke to one of the other instructors that actually... Uh, he went all the way up to VO2 max, essentially nose breathing, which I think is remarkable if you can do that, because I'm, once you get up to those levels, uh, I don't know how many liters per minute that you breathe in and out, but it's significant. Well, I That's think Daniel, or oh, sorry to cut across you. I think Leo, when he was talking about his anatomy is going to be a limiting factor here, unless he was to use something like nasal dilators. And normally when it's looked at in the literature, you switch from nose to mouth breathing when you're breathing between 35 and 41 liters of air per minute, yeah. but that's going to be influenced by your genetics. Yeah. So if you have somebody like Leo, that's say, for example, because of his asthma and mouth breathing as a child, it can alter the craniofacial you know, development with narrower nostrils, then he's even got more resistance to his breathing, which in turn is going to hold him back. Um, yeah, it's fun, but you know what's really asked? The question that's really bugging me here is, why did you go anaerobic at that point? Was it because, okay, I can understand that you had to switch to mouth breathing because the air hunger was too much. Mm -hmm. And air hunger is driven, at least by carbon dioxide increase or accumulation. Mm -hmm. So when you were breathing in and out through your nose, you had fairly high carbon dioxide in the blood, probably about 44, 45 millimeters of mercury. And this would have caused an increased oxygen delivery from the hemoglobin to the working muscles to keep you aerobic. Mm -hmm. But at some point, the air hunger just got too much and you had to get rid of carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. And you did that by breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth. And it was the loss of carbon dioxide that caused a reduced oxygen delivery from the hemoglobin to the working muscles. And that's why you went anaerobic. 
Well, with that, yes. Um, well, the, the question is, what is what is the what is it driven by? It's driven by metabolic acidosis. In other words, there's so much carbon dioxide and and hydrogen ion and heat being produced by the cells because it's a graded test. Remember, the test keeps getting tougher. It doesn't get any easier. So because of the work rate of the muscle, that my system then couldn't clear all of that. N now it becomes excessive, right? Um, acidosis in my in my blood, and I couldn't clear it quick enough, and mm. um, which then led my mind. It became too much for me mentally and physically taxing, and then I had to change vent in mm. order to sustain my rate. So I changed vent, which then also encouraged me to go anaerobic to enable me to keep on going at the same intensity mm. this is where um breathing for health and breathing for performance are at the other end of the continuum for health carbon dioxide is really really important to get oxygen into that cell yeah in, in fact, a lot of people is like is too. A lot of people are too sensitive to the carbon dioxide, and so they breathe off too early. But when you're talking about um, pushing yourself to your limits, you're producing uh, a lot more carbon dioxide and heat and hydrogen ion than you're able to get rid of at a quick enough rate, and that's why you end up. You can't then access that. Um, oxygen and so your body reuses the lactate as a fuel source so well, could, we, it be, could it be something else leo is that with the increased carbon dioxide in the blood you've got increased oxygen delivery to the working muscles which in turn is is oxidizing hydrogen ion to form water so you're reducing acidity that way as well because of mm -hmm. the oxygen effect possibly and, and these are all you're absolutely right patrick and these are all aspects that need to be researched and understood that uh we're, we're here to kind of say to researchers and say to people who are out here and interested in this field mm. look we now know this part um of the equation now let's continue to build on the research underneath and, and instead of using applied physiology let's find out what's actually going on what i did with this is in uh, as i said i'm a case study and that doesn't stand for much in in science but I then got 10, I actually paid for, no, 12 people. And I've been training them uh, for two years at that stage in breathing, as well as conditioning for, for Gaelic games. And I, I paid for them to do the VO2 max test as well as I had done it. And what was really interesting is that they all hit this point, this anaerobic threshold at a similar time for me. Now, it's a small sample size. It's 13 people all together, but it's a start. Um, and it certainly then would build on some other research, which is suggesting that in trained people, that when you switch from all nose to nose mouth, that certainly you turn anaerobic quicker. Let's put it that way. Let's put it that way. But there are people then, if, if they have very strong jaw lines, very good anatomy, there is evidence to also suggest that um, athletes can, and it's very possible for humans to breathe through their nose through a full VO2 max test and go to 100%. Does that make sense too? Mm -hmm. 
So the way I use this, and, and I would call it like a, a breathing level system, I know other people call it the breathing gears. So Brian McKenzie, who you had on the podcast uh, before, Brian and I were actually talking at this time back in 2017 when I was testing this. He was testing something similar with his athletes, and uh, he was using uh, a VO2 max test as well. And then Rob Wilson and Brian ended up coming out with their version of the breathing gears, which is a little bit more in depth than this. I've kind of kept it real simple um, because I just don't think that the the research is behind it enough to, to give any other insights into what's going on. But in anybody that I've trained since, I would say there is a, a strong correlation between all nasal breathing and switching over to nose mouth breathing and using lactate as a fuel source. Yeah. But uh, you talked about the VO2 max here. What if you reach that level and you go really, or you go very high up and you get into uh, the anaerobic state. If you want to come back over and over again, uh, several times, how would you, how would you train that? And how would you use that? So you're, you're, you're to the right on this curve and you want to get back and then you go up again and in uh, tennis and football, ice hockey, uh, those sports. Beautiful. So I look at, at this as a part of the strength continuum. Okay. So I mean by strength continuum on one hand for the body, when applied to sport, you got relaxation on one side of the continuum. Yeah. And then on the other side, you have um, maximal strength. So you're talking about using breathing. Um, and you could put could power in that as well, right? So maximal strength and power. So you're talking about uh, if you're using breathing for let's say CrossFit where you're doing uh, multiple reps of an exercise or let's say soccer where you're doing a sprint and then recovering or judo in my case where you would use it to be throwing people and use your power in inactivity and then you recover, yeah? Mm. So if you use at, at, at this end, your breathing um, has a role to play in relaxation and in the generation of maximal strength and power. So on the one hand, if you have no strength or power and it's very light exercise, take for example, like going for a walk or a jog, well, then you'll go forever and ever and ever and ever and ever because it's just about energy, right? But when you start using breathing for power for force production well then you start start using up energy a lot faster so all you're doing is is you're using your energy not only for activity for physiology using oxygen but then you're also using it for the generation of extra power so if you train your breathing as a baseline it will help you to access here and recover quicker between relaxation and max strength does that make sense? Because you'll use your breathing for generating force, for generating IAP, for generating more muscle power, but then you'll recover and recover. You'll use your energy for um, endurance, for keep on going and going and going deeper into your set, and then you recover more. 
So a lot of people don't look at training their breathing specifically, but what I'm saying is, is that it absolutely can be used for that purpose. Is that, does that answer your question, Daniel? Yeah. And also like, I know it's more specific, but you have, while you do something as, uh, as far as let's say running in, in, in soccer or sprint, what you should think about, I, I know we discussed this before, but also afterwards, if you, if the, if the game is on the other side and you have 20 seconds to recover, do you, do you use certain training protocols such as nose breathing with long exhales, breathe light in the actual games? I know in judo it must be very difficult, but you have maybe pauses. But in once you have these 20 to 30 to 40 second breaks on and off, beautiful. Uh, so more specific. Okay, so now we're talking about applying this baseline data across a real life sport. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose. Before we dive into that, what I want to maybe map out here, when I talk about maximal strength or power, we're really talking about force production. We're talking about muscle contraction. Does that make sense? That is typically done in an anaerobic state. Okay. Uh, where you're, you're, think of Usain, I always like to, to go back to this. So Usain Bolt is a, is a 100 meter sprinter, fastest man in the world, sub 10 seconds, right? He uses mainly... Uh, creatine phosphate as an energy system. This is way up here at the top end of your VO2 max for an endurance runner, okay? You then have, uh, there's an Irish 400 meter runner called David Gillick, right? So 400 meters is very much uh, a sport that works on the edge of this anaerobic threshold. In other words, you produce a lot of power but it's not at the same force as Usain Bolt. Does that make sense? Yeah. So in other words, he can't run and um, run the same speed, but he, he is a little bit more endurance in him. Yeah. And then you have high-end endurance like Mo Farah, which is all endurance, and they don't use any force at all or, or any uh, very little anaerobic metabolism at all. Does that make sense? Yeah. They're all at the other end, okay? Yeah. So... That means in my little continuum over here on the on with the orange line on this side, you're more aerobic when you're in a relaxed state. You're more anaerobic when using maximal power. And then you have in between, yeah? So in between is, in, it might be intervals. It might be um, like 400 meters. It might be uh, a sport like, uh, let's say, soccer, which uses mixed energy systems. Does that make sense? And they bounce between the two. So your question was, was if I remember right, or, or before we apply it, I should say, is, is um, where are the real benefits of breathing? Yeah. So after I did these VO2 max tests, I thought, well, I can't start paying for everybody to do a VO2 max test. So, but I needed more data, more information. So I ran an online uh, breathing fitness challenge. And what I did was I used a field version of a VO2 max test to see what was happening. And I wanted to test two things was, I wanted to get people interested in breath training. So I gave them a 10 day training program. At the start of the program, I made them do a 12 minute run and said, okay, run it any way you want, run it as hard as you can, get as far as you can. And then I want you to time your recovery period. Okay, so that would give me an indicator whether they were good at whether this was going to improve the performance of the run or the recovery. In other words, the 
more towards the anaerobic and the max power or more towards the relaxation, the aerobic metabolism, yeah? Then mm-hmm. I train them just in breath training for 10 days. So in the auction advantage methodology, I trained them for 10 days. I gave them all, this is all done for free, gave them everything for free. And then I got them to retest afterwards. And in the retest, I did the same thing. I said, nose breathe for as long as you can. You can go into mouth breathing. I want you to run as hard as you can for 12 minutes. And then I also want you to record your recovery time. What I found was, is that performance improvement was about one to 2% on average. Okay. But recovery improvement was, if I remember right, it was um, 32 to 40% improvement in recovery. In other words, how did you measure that? How was the measurement done? And it was uh, it was subjective. So it was timed and and timed until you had you were breathing calm after the run. So once they finished their run, time to calm breathing in and out of the nose. Okay, Mm -hmm. and and that was done on the run before and the run afterwards. So this would lead back to what we're finding anecdotally is, is that. Breathing is amazing. Like the, the, the foundations of breathing is it's good for health. It's good for relaxation. It's good for rebalancing all the go, go, go that we have in this world. And when you do that, it really benefits repeat sprint sports, uh, mental uh, challenging mental performance sports. And it will also have some crossover into max strength and power, even for a hundred meter sprinter. But the real beauty of it is, is in all those field sports and endurance sports is where they'll get even more benefits. And then the the benefits to a max strength sport is actually in that they can relax and recover from their training and be repaired and ready to go the next day. And I suppose, Daniel, it's probably worth breaking down breathing because some people may be listening and just wondering what sort of breathing is going on here. So you're talking about nose breathing during rest, during physical exercise and during sleep. You're also talking about slow breathing, resonance frequency breathing, maybe or cadence breathing, breathing with good use of the diaphragm, but then doing breath holds, which is the other extreme, because I've been thinking about, say, the maximum strength or maximum power. If we're practicing breath holds during, you know, during jogging and we're lowering our blood oxygen saturation down into the mid 80s, and we're increasing carbon dioxide, that's going to cause adaptations, which it's taught to improve the buffering capacity inside in the muscle compartment, which in turn would ha- also impact people who are involved with anaerobic. So both from the aerobic perspective to the anaerobic perspective, breathing, because sometimes in my mind, people think that breathing is just taking that deep breath, but there's more to that. I fully agree with you. I didn't know whether that was a question to me or to Daniel because you yeah, that's you. <laughs> <laughs> that's you're you're absolutely right. Like it, for me, breathing and breath training, ninety percent of the benefits are about health. Okay, so it's about helping you to breathe better through the day. It's about helping to restore better parasympathetic tone in the nervous system. It's about improving your sleep. It's about improving your um, focus and concentration. When you train the fundamentals of breathing, which is the auction advantage and everything we do in the auction advantage, that, that benefits your whole life. And then you can layer on 
the extra bit of performance work that will give the elite athlete or give you the extra edge in sport. And there are small aspects that will really benefit you. But it's really about restoring your breathing to your innate capacity, to your natural abilities. That's that's where the real power of it is, is, is my feeling on it and, and my experience of it. So would you, would you think a huge benefit for elite athletes that practice, let's say, four hours a day, two hours and then two hours, very, very hard and that they have an elevated pulse rate probably for, I don't know, 30 to 60 minutes, maybe two hours, and then they go back at it again, and then an elevated pulse rate for one to two hours again, that affects their, you know, resting pulse and then their sleep, and then you go back at it. So the main main um, benefit would be to calm down like you had the recovery right after so when you go back into your next training session you don't perform at 80 but at 100 and and so and continue along that way would you say that's the biggest benefit the the old adage in sport is is um the fittest man isn't the one that can run the fastest but the one that can recover the quickest Mm. right that's an old saying in sport um which I think is 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 absolutely spot on, and that's where breathing comes in and really benefits that. Like if you're not, I, I think that a lot of elite athletes think they are recovering well, uh, but the reality is is that they're not. Now you can you can put metrics on this and relate it across to heart rate variability, and I know you've had other people on and talking about that. And I used heart rate variability for three years back 2015, 16, 17. Um, and I just found that actually when you become trained in it, your breathing is much more sensitive to recovery and to knowing the state of your being than any tech is to date. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I tried quite a lot of them back then. Um, mm-hmm. And I just found that my breathing was much more sensitive. So when you train your breathing and get used to the bolt score and even your maximal breath holds that when you get a sense of where you are and how efficient your breathing is, it then acts as a amazing mirror for how well you're coping with the stressors of life. I know we had this discussion earlier, I think six months ago that I think these uh, biometric devices has a role to play, especially the first couple of years, because you want to get into some sort of more routine. You want to get the immediate feedback, see what happens. But as you get dialed in, you can kind of leave it more and more and be more, you can feel it versus yeah. to see it. So, but there is a role for them to play as well. Uh, and it's good to see your HRV, your pulse rate, respiratory rate, whatever they may, you know, how your sleep is, because I think that's a motivational factor for a lot of athletes. If you're that way inclined, if you're a quantitative person that loves numbers and you understand how to use the tech, it's I, I still use it with a lot of clients who are starting their journey and that way oriented, that quantitative analysis uh, oriented. I think it's a brilliant lead in for people. But essentially, like the most complex piece of tech that is known is is what's in there. Um, we, we haven't figured it out yet at all. Uh, and I think it's it's just amazing. And all you have to do is learn how to tune in. Uh, it's there for you. Leo, so you, in terms of recovery, there's going to be a number of factors that are playing a role there. What do you think those factors are? 
So if somebody is thinking about breathing, how can breathing help aid recovery? Is it the fact that you have your mouth closed during physical exercise, that there's increased oxygen delivery? Is it because of the balance of the autonomic nervous system? Is so it because... You would think at the end of that marathon that uh, it would take me a long time to recover afterwards, mm. right? Uh, I was fully recovered within three days. I went back to, I hadn't been training in judo because I was specializing in the marathon and just focused on that. I didn't want to get injured. So I went back to training and absolutely annihilated myself on the Thursdays. So the marathon was on a Sunday. That was a Thursday night. And I knew that I was fully recovered. And I said, you know what? I'm going to compete this weekend. And I competed the following weekend in, in the over 30s of veterans uh, national championships. And I ended up getting a bronze medal in it. Uh, so I competed at quite a, quite a high standard for, for, uh, for, for vets. And um, fully recovered within a week in a completely different sport. Um, the benefits to breathing uh, for recovery is quite simply, one, you're going to have a more resilient nervous system by training your breathing as a whole. In other words, you'll have a higher parasympathetic tone and you'll be able to recover your sympathetic tone quicker. By doing that, then you're going to have benefits on, uh, you, you'll also then be able to use your breathing to calm your heart rate quicker and your blood pressure quicker after exercise. Because as we know, the heart is not separate to the diaphragm. The heart sits inside the diaphragm. It literally, if you look at a cadaver study, it makes an impression in the diaphragm. There's no separation. So as you restore your breathing more quickly and more efficiently directly after your sport, you're automatically calming down the heart rate. You're automatically calming down blood pressure. You're sending signals to the brain and the autonomic nervous system to rebalance and restore straight away. And you're starting the whole repair process in your body um, almost from your first breath after you finish. Whereas somebody who is less aware of their breathing or is less trained and has a less efficient breathing, then they're going to be afterwards, they're going to be out of breath for longer. They're not going to be thinking about it. So they're going to maintain that um, adapted breathing pattern for a lot longer, which is going to keep the whole body and, and mind in a state of stress for a lot longer. Then they mightn't sleep as well, which means they're not going to recover and restore. They're not going to get rid of all of that, um, all of those metabolites that you generated during the day. And now it goes into the next day and the next day and the next day. Um, and, and any... Any recovery modality really is, is about calming the body down. Some of them do it indirectly, some of them do it indirectly, but it's about calming the body down so that you can sleep better. And sleep is where recovery really happens. A question then is how do you, I know it's a difficult question to, to answer, but the two aspects, raising your baseline, and also mm. the ability to, you know, if you tell somebody to slow breathe, you get immediate effect after a few minutes, but you, you don't raise the baseline that quickly. What would you say a person can expect? What type, how many months or how much training do they have to put in to raise their actual baseline? Uh, because you can get immediate effect. So how, what's your, as a coach, what do you tell your, your students when they come? <laughs> So my background is in SNC 
which means that I analyze training programs to quite a fine detail so that I know at least what response I want to get out of it. And this is something that proved difficult, even with the array, like the auction advantage has a quite a narrow set of techniques and there's multiple techniques in there that actually elicit similar types of responses. When I'm coaching people, I, at this stage, I use two techniques, right? I use the, um, I use a preparation for high altitude training, which is a walking breath holds um, interspersed with a 60 second rest period. Okay. I use that for improving CO2 tolerance and dampening CO2 sensitivity. And then I use um, uh, breathe right to breathe right. And they're my two, they are my bazookas. They're my, my, for me, they are the two best breathing techniques out there for training your breath. And if I was to pick any techniques in the whole world, I'd say, give me those two any day of the week. And eventually you'll restore your breathing. Okay. Now, as I've dove into breathing and all different techniques and all different methodologies, I do have a couple that I use that speed up the results of uh, for my clients. So typically, I would say to people that for the general population who aren't used to training, I would say anywhere between 12 weeks and six months to fully restore their breathing. And for an athlete who is motivated, who understands training and that they actually have to do it consistently, um, and that could be a motivated person, it just tends to be more athletes, I would say anywhere between six and 12 weeks is all it takes. That's it, a focused work. Now I'm pretty strict in what I mean by that. So I'll say, like I'm old school, as you told me originally, Patrick, is that's a minimum of two training sessions a day, an ideal of three per day. And that's gradually putting in the lifestyle aspects around it. And it may need some support from lifestyle, um, like adaptations to sleep, maybe a little bit of supplementation and some changes to food and that. I do include that because I, I, I just have that expertise. But the main heart of it is, is those two techniques, those two auction advantage techniques um, done consistently every day for that length of time. Mm. Thanks, Daniel. Um, I'm just thinking about athletes getting burnout or exhaustion. Do you see this happening? Is this something that happens out there? And could breathing play that role? And if an athlete is more in tune with their body and stress levels, they may be able to offset that or, or you understand what I'm trying to say, you know, prevent it from happening. Absolutely. And, and I suppose the measurements was something else Daniel asked. I just use a bolt score. Um, I use a, the maximal um, breathlessness test. Uh, they're my two main go-to. I do, uh, I know Brian um, McKenzie, he has what I call the, the maximal exhale score. Mm. And I believe he has a bit of research coming out on that. I use that for people who are a little bit less, let's say people who are more quantitative based and want a breathing score for it. it, it it's a nice one for them. But my main one is Bolt and um, everyone we teach in the auction advantage. That's the first thing. Our athletes burned out all the time. Like I've worked with athletes who are on medication to help them to get to sleep and they think that they're ready to go. And these are Olympic level athletes. 
and they think that there's nothing wrong. You got to remember that just before burnout, when you're stressed, you lose a sense of interoception or you can't feel the signals that's going on in your body. Your, your, your brain doesn't see them clearly. So you don't know what you don't know. So you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. So when you do the bolt and you, I mean, you, you've all had athletes who, you know, at the top of their sport and all of a sudden they're producing an 11 second bolt and you're like, yeah. oh, something's not right here. Yeah. And are they on a road to burnout? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. I, I'm sure, Patrick, you have some, maybe you want to give some cases or just some athletes that come to mind that, and, and Daniel, you too, just mm. so people get an understanding. This isn't just Leo and his client's version. I, I Like, uh, auction advantage instructors across the board are seeing this. Mm. Well, we've seen it. We've seen it. In, and not necessarily either professional athletes, Leo, I've seen actually just normal recreational athletes pushing it too hard. Mm. They might be involved with triathlete or whatever. And with Seven Daniel, we're talking to one. I can't remember who it was, but he told us he was pretty much at the peak of his game at a world-class level, had exhaustion, and he was bed-bound for six months. Yeah. Like, that is some change. Well, Paul Check is a, is a very famous uh, trainer. Um, over in the States and he put it wonderfully it's it's every summer needs a winter every day needs a night every summer needs a winter and you can go without winter for a year two years for even two or three decades but eventually eventually winter comes and what winter means is is winter is the time for nature to hibernate for you to calm down for you to relax for you to recover for you to um Go inward and look and see what's going on inside yourself. Mm. Yeah. In other words, it's your time to relax and restore and regenerate. But if an athlete pushes it, and they can push it for decades at an elite level, but if they do that, eventually winter will come. And mm. it, it will result in them being, um, I, I've seen it with very bad diseases um, and mental health issues and chronic fatigue syndromes in people who are, you know, they get to their 40s, sometimes 50s, um, and all of a sudden their body just falls apart. Mm. And chronic fatigue syndrome is, we have worked with that too over the years in terms of gently rehabilitation and bringing balance to the autonomic nervous system, almost that you're reversing the overtraining that's happening. Mm-hmm. And you're doing it so gentle over a period of time to help bring regulation. And yeah. um, it's, uh, yeah, CFS is just one of those, it's not a nice condition. No, absolutely not. And it's it's somebody who has been under a lot of pressure and a lot of stress and possibly trauma too for a long, long time. And it is a syndrome. A syndrome by definition means they don't know what's going on with it. They don't know where it's originating, but they do know it's chronic fatigue. So they know it's due to you burning the candle at both ends for too yeah. long. So I, I always take things back. I'm a, I'm a simple guy. The way the human body and mind works as i see it is you have inputs throughputs and outputs and all the time um, medicine and science is looking at what's going on inside what's going on in your blood what's going on in your hrv what's going on in your mind these are the throughputs right but what i do is i step back and i go okay well what's what are your inputs 
So what's your breathing like? What's your exercise like? What's your sleep like? What are the things that you actually have control, direct control over in your life that are fundamental to human beings? And then how can we improve them so that you feel better, which is your output, so that you can perform better, which is your output? So if your outputs are off, a lot of people look at the throughputs. I don't. I go a stage earlier and I go, well, what are you putting in? Yeah, I just look at that simply. And the more simple I get, the better results I seem to be getting over the years. And uh, breathing is really at the core of all of that. And there are some other things which uh, I know Daniel will love to to talk about, which we might leave to another day. But the likes of heat and and cold are very, very simple things that we've I think we've forgotten as humans and we're only reminding ourselves of again. That also has a basic recovery and your and your breathing pattern. So that for another time. But yes, uh, mm. I think this has been fantastic. I think we could uh, go maybe deeper in uh, at some stage on some of these as well. Uh, I think this uh, is interesting also because I think a lot of coaches will still understand most of this. So I think it's highly relevant. And putting the focus on recovery, like you said earlier, Leo. Uh, very interesting. So, uh, Leo, Daniel, Leo, um, where do you see the future of this with SNC? I know I'm putting you on the spot. Well, I, I think as a whole, the auction advantage methodology will be adopted wholly across the board. They might not call it that, mm. <laughs> but essentially, it will. Nasal breathing will become a standard as a as a as a baseline breathing pattern. People will remember that. That's Experts will remember that that's what we're meant to be doing and they will communicate that downstream to everybody. Um, breathing through your nose at rest, uh, during all light exercise and moderate exercise. And I think at a at high intensity exercise that the mouth will open depending on how people have developed and formed and what their anatomy is like over time. Mm. Um, but do I see this coming in? Yeah, I mean, it, it already is. It's a wave that's coming in. My intention and my desire is that you know becomes common practice um, and i turn up to a to a field or to a team and they're already doing it and i just smile to myself and mm. remember the days when it wasn't that common mm. it's amazing i was at a is that a hurling match uh, was just a few weeks ago and i heard one of the coaches shouting out breathe through your nose and i said oh wow, that's absolutely <laughs> clear. and this is this is just this is a club level you know so it's an absolutely class you know um, and if people want to, uh, your website is? It's innatestrength.com. So that's innate-strength.com. And it's also on Instagram. And, and um, Instagram will be the main social handle that I use too. Innate-strength.com. Yeah, I, do, um, I do online coaching. I do a lot of one-to-one -one coaching is what it's based on. Uh, and obviously, I'm a master instructor in the Oxygen Advantage. So... At the moment, I'm doing a lot of one-to-one -one, um, education uh, in the auction advantage is what I'm getting into now. Great um, stuff. Yeah. Excellent. Great. So Perfect. super, that was a great conversation. Daniel, do you want final closing words? No, I'm, I'm all done. It's fantastic and very good explanations. I think it's uh, mm. uh, you can follow this uh, very easily. So um, great. Excellent. Right, guys, we'll sign off. So thanks very much for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Oxygen Advantage podcast. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe 
and maybe take the time to leave us a review. The Oxygen Advantage podcast is available from all your podcast providers.